Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on February 16th, 2022. My guest on the show today is director of the Housing Bubble movie, Jimmy Morrison. The documentary, co-written with libertarian talk show host Tom Woods, outlines the history of economic activity that ultimately resulted in the massive real estate bubble that burst in 2007 and created the economic collapse of 2008. The film describes a history of U.S. monetary policy going back to the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913 and outlines how expansionist fiscal policy is ultimately to blame for many of the economic woes endured over the past 100 years, culminating in the 2008 debacle. In Jimmy's quest to understand just what happened when the bubble burst, he sought out interviews with the few economists who predicted the event. One characteristic they all had in common was an influence by the Austrian school, a lineage of economics that promotes free market-oriented monetary policy, in contrast to the widely applied philosophies advocated by those in favor of strong central bank intervention. Featuring conversations with such economic luminaries as Ron Paul, Jim Rogers, and Doug Casey, among others, the film describes how money is created and distributed in language that the layman can understand. It goes on to discuss how government policies ostensibly designed to bolster the economy often result in the misappropriation of funds within large business sectors that not only create false value signals for investors, but also produce a level of inflation that ultimately weakens the spending power of the common person. Not only does the film cover bubbles created after World War I, the bubble that caused the Great Depression, as well as reasons for the stagflation of the 1970s, but it goes into specific detail about how Clinton and Bush-era housing policies led directly to the lending practices that blew the housing bubble of 2007. While monetary policy is often shrouded in complicated economic terminology, colloquially known as Fed-speak, decisions made concerning the spending power of the U.S. dollar may well be the least discussed, yet most important issue affecting the lives of every American on a daily basis. The Housing Bubble movie shines a light on this complicated topic, which reveals a history of inflating economic value in the short term at the expense of spending power over the long term. The result is the repetition of a cycle of boom and bust characterized by consistent inflation, which results in more debt and less savings for the average person over time. As is typical, the Federal Reserve has only doubled down on these long-standing practices since 2008, so stay tuned for the Bigger Bubble movie, set for release in late 2022. 
Find out more about the Housing Bubble documentary and keep an eye out for the new release by going to www.letusdisagree.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this interview on your favorite social media sites. We rely on listeners like you for distribution of this alternative information. As always, sign up for the newsletter, find hours of free content, or subscribe for feature-length episodes of The Shift by going to www.theshiftnow.com. Find my written work on Substack at the Populous Papers blog, or get in touch at Doug McKinty on Facebook, at McKinty on Twitter, or find The Shift on Rockfin, Odyssey, YouTube, and any podcast hosting platform. I want to thank Jimmy Morrison for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this, the 110th episode of The Shift. I'm joined today by filmmaker Jimmy Morrison. He has produced a, sh- a movie called The Housing Bubble. We're, uh, I was just telling him we're having an old school Federal Reserve conversation today because this uh, is one of the most important conversations, probably one of the most important issues that nobody knows about and nobody talks about how fractional reserve banking works, how monetary policy affects our daily lives and what the heck's been going on um, for the last 120 years since they put the Federal Reserve together. Uh, Jimmy's movie covers all of that history and more. does a really good job, actually, of explaining for the layperson uh, how the fractional reserve banking system works and exactly what its pitfalls are. And then he goes uh, and interviews all of the, I would say, mostly libertarian uh, economists that all predicted the housing bubble of 2008. Uh, and he's also got a new movie coming out here, hopefully shortly, uh, called The Bigger Housing Bubble. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll talk about it in the interview, but it's looking like that one might pop here pretty soon, too. So, hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to dig into this stuff with you and uh, appreciate you taking the time to watch the film and uh, to tell your viewers about it. So do you just want to tell your story about how you got started? I know uh, you were in school and then uh, you decided that you wanted to be a filmmaker and you started a painting business. And that's that was 2007, 2008. And the rest is history. <laughs> that's right. The rest is history. Uh, so in 2006, I was uh, studying at the University of Iowa and I was studying economics, um, but I had written a script and uh, you know, my passion was film. That's what I really wanted to pursue. Uh, but I knew if I finished uh, my degree, I'd have the potential of a job offer. Uh, and, you know, it, once you have income, you're a lot less likely to take those risks and go out and try to uh, make movies for a living. And so I dropped out of school. I had saved half of every paycheck through high school and had it in mutual funds um, because my parents made me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I dropped out and I took all that money instead of spending it on school. I spent it on camera equipment and just started filming bands. I raised a little bit of money and shot most of that script, which was a feature film. Uh, and it really was my film school. You know, I learned so much making it about, you know, working with the cast and working with a crew and, uh, you know, being a business owner and having a business plan, all that. Um, but, uh, after a few years of painting how, so when I dropped out, I started this house painting business at the same time so that I would have income, you know, if I paint a house, then I can take off uh, with a band on the road to go film. Um, as long as I get the house done before I leave, you know, that sort of thing. It gave me a lot of flexibility. Um, but 
2006 was also when house prices peaked. I actually started the business like right when house prices peaked, like the month. Um, and so I kind of watched that stuff unwind for a couple of years, um, not from the perspective of uh, somebody that saw it coming or, uh, you know, somebody that had a lot on the line being like a homeowner or anything like that. But my painting business, that income was dependent on it. And so I learned a lot watching that. And I, I learned about home equity loans and how people were just taking money out of their houses. And that's why I was making so much money. Um, but then I saw it unwind and I thought to myself, you know, there had, there had to have been people out there that predicted this. And so I was like, I'm going to get back into economics and try to really wrap my head around this. And I just did a torrent search for the word economics and came up with economics in one lesson by Henry Hazlitt as an audiobook. And so I was painting a house, listening to his book that he wrote in the 1940s. And I was like, oh my God, he's describing this exactly, uh, you know, exactly what we just went through. And, uh, you know, that led me down this path of saying like, you know, I got to track these guys down and tell their story. And it wasn't that I was looking for libertarian uh, people, you know, I Mm. honestly was more of a Republican that at that point, I didn't know that much about the monetary system or any of that. And um, so really, it was this idea of I got to track down the people that predicted the housing crash. And then I found out, man, all these people are into Austrian economics. And uh, it, it led me toward libertarianism, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I've actually been going through this situation. I told you that I had um, done this uh, campaign here locally about public banking and trying to establish a public bank here in uh, where I live in Mendocino County in Northern California. Um, and it's been an interesting journey for me because I've been a libertarian probably since, in fact, I was going to talk to you about this a little bit. I noticed that you uh, did an interview with the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. So when I was in college, mm-hmm. I did some seminars with those guys, uh, actually learned a lot. They turned me on to Murray Rothbard and some of the more the more radical uh, libertarian thinkers and the Austrian school. And that was uh, my transition from republicanism into libertarianism as well, actually. Um, that was in the early 90s for me. Um, but um, it's fascinating to kind of realize that the Austrian school, I mean, it's, and over the course of the rest of my life, it's been the same thing. It's been frustrating because they predict everything that's going on. They know exactly what's happening and why things are so screwed up and what's uh what the problems are with the financial system and the way government is running things. And um, it's just frustrating because so few people understand the economics of it. And then it's challenging to be able to talk to them about it and about the Austrian school perspective. Most people aren't educated about economics. It's kind of a boring subject for a lot of people and they don't really realize how, how important it is in all of our lives, right? I mean, how this is affecting us. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Um, just that process that you went through of of understanding libertarianism and then starting to talk to these guys about um, fiscal policy and monetary theory. And uh, what were they describing to you that was new, different, and gave them this perspective that allowed them to predict these housing bubbles? Yeah, uh, I think it's important to note that there were other crashes they predicted too. Like you said, you know, if you go in the film, we go back to the Great Depression and show Mises uh, talking about it. Um, but uh, I think the 
the it started as just a small economics project uh, in my mind, right? But what we really realized once we dug into this and got these interviews was that we could teach uh, economics vocabulary all day long, and that's not going to make a difference. What we mm-hmm. want to do is reach the people uh, who, you know, they may not be willing to spend the time reading a whole book on economics, but they are going to give you that 70, 80 minutes to sit down for a documentary. And so what we found was uh, with a lot of years of work, um, and a combination of using like pop culture clips and comedy and, you know, a lot of uh, uh, cultural references, we found that if you just ignore all the vocabulary words and just get it down to the very basics um, and explain it in a way that, like you said, like the layman can just sit down and watch this movie. And if they have no background in economics, uh, you know, they can get a good understanding of the last hundred years and what happened with our money um, and why we keep having these crashes and these bubbles. Um, so I, I think although it's taken us years and years, you know, I started this project uh, at the end of 2010, really, is when the uh, film started. And I started shooting interviews in May 2011. Um, and we just had the first one come out uh, in 2019. And then the second one, uh, the sequel, starts with the bailouts in 2008 and brings it up uh, to the end of 2019, mm-hmm. uh, going into the pandemic in 2020. Um, so we, ha- we have this sequel. It's turned into this this big thing. but um, I think it's something where it, people will be able to watch either film and come away with that basic understanding about the Fed and about the dollar. Um, and like you said, we talked about fractional reserve banking in the first movie. I'm sure when that came up, you were just shocked because like how many documentaries talk about fractional reserve yeah. banking? Um, but I, I will just uh, to add on that. Um, we're not trying to tell people what to do with their money or like what. uh you know, what the consequences of all this, how this is all going to play out. We're trying to give people the basic tools so that they can make their own decisions. Because if we have that decentralized response where all these people who have gotten this basic understanding are trying different things, that's going to be so much more effective than if I'm just like, oh, you know, as this uh, filmmaker, I think you guys should do this, you know. And that's that's really the, the big takeaway that I got from interviewing all these people is their uh, humbleness and their um, self-awareness that they don't know the timing of any of this and they don't claim to know the timing, but they do know that there are consequences to what the federal reserve and the federal government has done. And that you can't just create tons and tons of money and just pay people to sit at home and not work for a year and a half as as we've seen. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just turned the economy into, and it's not just the last couple of years, you know, this really has been going on, uh, for the last 10 years and the last 20 years, even, um, e- even more as far as like, they built a dot-com bubble, it collapsed. They replaced it with a housing bubble, it collapsed. Yeah. And now they've replaced it with people with what people call the everything bubble. And anytime they've tried to like pull that uh, Fed spigot of free money away, um, you know, anytime they've tried, the economy starts to, to get weak and, uh, you know, stocks went down 20%. Uh, a couple years ago, and they immediately just started lowering interest rates and bailing out the banks. And so it's just built into the system now. They just bail out the banks every month, the housing market, the government debt. Uh, they're, they're just buying uh, insane amounts of bonds and just creating the money to do it. And it's something that would have been unimaginable when I started making this project. Um, but like you said, there are these people that um, you know saw those trends coming, and they're the ones that I've really... Uh, you know, look to and uh, gained a lot of insight from. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating as I as I was watching the movie, I was realizing that these guys 
you know, they, the excuse they have for doing what they do is to try to uh, lessen the impact of these boom and bust cycles. And then the, clearly the monetary policy creates the boom and busts over <laughs> and over again. And it's like, what, what are you doing? And they never learn from their lessons. Um, I want to get into that, but um, can you describe fractional reserve just uh, just in a few minutes as simply as possible for those maybe who don't know about it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it, like I said, we get into this in the movie. So the movie is going to do a much better job of explaining it than me. But um, it, it's not just that they're creating money. The way they're doing it is through the banking system. And so if they create a dollar and then uh, the, the banks, the way they're set up, it, it's going to actually create a lot more than because they have this fractional reserve system. And so I think the easiest way to go to understand it is to kind of go back toward like when it was starting. And so like if you put gold in uh, an account in a bank and they gave you a piece of paper saying you can get this gold back, you know, this, this piece of paper is worth one dollar or however many dollars like that. What that was was, a uh, you know, uh, the the dollar or the the paper money was just the certificate for getting the gold back. Mm -hmm. But if a bank decides, hey, you know, we have all this gold sitting in here, why don't we loan some of it out and actually keep less of it? And as long as everybody doesn't come back for their money at the same time, then everything's going to be okay. And so that's kind of what fractional reserve banking is. You know, things are so much more complicated uh, in the financial system now. But I think if you just kind of look at it that way as, um, you know, if everybody comes in at, at once or not even everybody, if more people come in at once, if they've loaned out that gold, it doesn't matter uh, if you have those paper certificates, if you can't get it back because of that fractional reserve system, um, then you have a run on the bank and, uh, you know, people lose out and they have to face reality. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it that really boggles my mind is that these people can then loan out. I mean, I think it's 10 times the amount of money that they actually have in their reserve. And so right. they're making, they're literally making money when they give you a loan. We all, I, you know, I was naive about this once and thought that, well, they're just loaning us the money that's in the bank, you know, but that's not yeah. how it works at all. They're literally making the money out of thin air, loaning it and then getting interest off the top. Right. For this money right. that they just poof, you know, they just made, they just manufactured it. My my friend from Germany, uh, Chris Naylor, was the first person to explain this to me. And I I just was like, no, right. that could be know, true. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way. He's like, yeah, I'm from Germany. I know this. How do you not know how your <laughs> yeah. economic system works? <laughs> well, on the face of it, it's a scam. I mean, it's a yeah, scam. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and something I'll add to that, the uh, with the bailouts in 2008, they started paying the banks interest on reserves. So not only do they create reserves, give it to the banks, and they have this fractional reserve system that they can profit off of, they also started paying them interest if they don't loan it out, if they keep it at the Federal Reserve. Huh. So like if they just create all this extra money that they have to make their balance sheets look good, the banks, like, you know, the banks had terrible balance sheets. They, you know, everybody was realizing that they were bankrupt, but the Fed just gave them a bunch of money and said, not only are we bailing you out now, we're perpetually going to bail you out each month because you can keep some of that money at the Fed and we'll just pay you interest. You have that guaranteed profit. Um, and so really, I like to say that the bank bailouts didn't stop. You know, people mm -hmm. think about 2008, 2009, but they just kept going. Right. Well, I, have they even ever stopped the quantitative easing? This quantitative easing is just they're just giving money into the they're injecting money into the system all the time. The, the government, the Federal Reserve just injects 
new money into the system. It's um, purely inflationary as far as I can tell, but it keeps the bank solvent while they continue all the crazy lending that they've done for the last since for the last hundred years since the Great Depression. Right. So Ben Bernanke in 2008, 2009, you know, he was saying, uh, we're going to time this. It's okay. We're going to be able to create all this money, buy all this uh, mortgage bonds and government bonds. And, you know, at the right time, we're going to stop and we're going to sell it all back. And, you know, if they sell it back into the market, that's going to crash housing. It's going to crash the treasury market and the government debt. Um, But uh, he said that in 2008, 2009. And then he retired years and years later and he had never done any of it. You know, every time they said they would do it, they'd be like, oh, economy's not looking good again. We better we better announce a new QE. So we had QE, QE2, Operation Twist, QE3. They finally did allow rates to go up because the interest rates have been pushed all the way down to zero. Um, and they have been for a decade. They allowed them to go up to just over 2%, um, which is way below historical you know, mm-hmm. so they they uh, let them go back up to uh, just over two percent in uh, leading up to 2018, and the the banks had to get bailed out. It was called uh, a big uh, repurchase bailouts. Um, you know, I won't get into technical stuff because uh, honestly, I don't think any of us really understand all of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the stock market went down like 20 percent uh, that fall. And what did they do? They started bailing out the banks. Uh, in uh, actually, I think I'm getting it wrong. I think it was 2019. Um, but it was the fall of 2019. They started bailing out the banks on a massive scale again. Um, and everybody points to the pandemic uh, for all these financial woes. But right. uh, I think it's really important to note that they started lowering interest rates before the pandemic and uh, started bailing out the banks again. And the economy was already tanking. And so, you know, uh, it, it's it's normal for a stock market to have 20% corrections at times, you know, like you have to get rid of that excess. Um, but if we just have an economy where they're going to just inject whatever is necessary to prop up the banks and to prop up Wall Street, um, you know, we're just going to keep creating one bigger bubble after another. And uh, it's not going to play out well. And as, as we've seen the last couple of years, I mean, things have gotten out of hand. Like the the market and the economy didn't uh, depend on Federal Reserve announcements to tell us, you know, which uh, businesses are they going to buy bonds from and stuff like that. Like that's that's not America. That's not our history. Um, but, you know, the last 10 years, that's what we've become. Yeah. I mean, it's basically one big perpetual bailout and it's not even in the news anymore. I mean, this in the 1980s is huge news. Oh, my God. The the government has to to inject money into the economy to bail out these banks. And basically, since 2008, it's just been like a perpetual bailout that's been happening. Um, and I, I think even the coronavirus package had more bailouts and stock mm-hmm. buyouts so that they could prop up the stock market after it crashed right after the lockdowns uh, were were called. Um, so we're just seeing more and more intervention by the central government and the central bank into the economy. Will you describe how how these then create these huge bubbles instead of allowing these market corrections to happen in the film? Actually, I didn't even know this bit of history. There was a depression uh, in 1920. And it lasted like a year and then it self-corrected because the government didn't get involved. But then in 1929, of course, we all know about the stock market crash. The government gets heavily involved and we have a Great Depression that lasts through World War II, essentially. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, so in 1920, the that year was uh, just as worse as the first year of the Great uh -huh. Depression. That's how big the crash was. Uh, but then the question becomes, like, how do you respond to these things? And, uh, you know, in Herbert Hoover and FDR ran huge deficits. There's kind of a narrative that Hoover was this free market guy. But uh, as we show in the film, that wasn't the yeah. case at all. He did more public work spending than all the previous presidents combined, I believe. Um, you know, he was running massive de deficits. Um, but in 1920, they didn't actually do that. They allowed interest rates to go back up to allow the market to correct. And they cut government spending in half because, um, you know, during the boom time, you get used to all this tax revenue com coming in from all that uh, short term stimulus. Um, and then during the correction, you realize, oh, wait, you know, there's not actually all this money coming in mm -hmm. anymore because there's less tax revenue. And uh, so they actually cut spending to, to balance the budget and started paying down the debt. And like you said, you know, the depression was over within a year, year and a half. Um, the Great Depression, they just tried to prop up, uh, you know, whatever it was, farm prices, uh, wages. Um, and like, I, I think something that was just really shocking to discover uh, when I learned about the Great Depression was that they literally were destroying crops. You know, they were paying uh, farmers to destroy crops yeah. to keep the prices high when people were starving all over the all over the country and they're keeping food prices high. It's like, man, that's that's something else. But <laughs> but you see the same thing with housing, right? Like they they're doing everything they can uh, on both sides of the aisle to prop up house prices. And they even Obama said that that what we needed was a floor in the house price and is, or in house prices. And it's like. Yeah, that's great to, you know, prop up all those people that have houses and they'll keep spending money and keep acting like everything's great. But that really sucks for us that like want to buy a house someday, you know, yeah. like there's there's the whole class of citizens that are just not don't get any benefit from this. And there's all these tax incentives for owning a house. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pricing uh, poor and lower income people and middle income people out of the market. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so fascinating about it. You had president after president after president in the film talking about how it's the American dream to own a home. So we're going to make it as easy as possible for you to own a home. Uh, and then they would just repeatedly pass these laws that that lowered the amount of uh, down payment you needed to have, that lowered the quality of the credit that you needed to have, uh, that would bail out the banks in case the bad credit you know went south and people couldn't pay the mortgages. Um, and it's just they do it because in the short term, it props up this concept of the American dream and everybody's got a house and the houses are going up and everybody feels rich. But in the long term, the the value's not actually there. It's not real money. It's just been printed money and it's inflated the the value of these uh, the real estate market and now everything else. Right. One, one of the things we saw in the film was in the 90s, you had the rise of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all these uh, requirements about having low down payments like you're talking about. Um, and so it, everybody knew by the end of the 90s that Fannie and Freddie would get bailed out if they ever crashed. And so what the banks started doing, um, well, Fannie and Freddie had these low uh low income housing requirements say to me. Um, so mortgage-backed securities uh, were actually created at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That was the first place they did it. But what right. banks ended up doing was they started packaging together mortgages and selling them to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because if they're going to get bailed out, then who cares? You know, you can make loans to whoever and yeah. they want them because they have to meet these requirements. Um, and so it, it's something where in the 90s we saw that 
But then it expanded from Fannie and Freddie at the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s because Alan Greenspan, uh, you know, sent signals to the market that, look, if stocks go down a little bit or if things start to crash a little bit, I'm your guy. You know, he'd been doing it for 20 years, really. Um, and the, the market knew that those bailouts would be there. And so it wasn't just that Fannie and Freddie knew they'd get bailed out, you know, the whole market did. And so that, that gives them the incentive to go ahead and make as much short-term money as they can, because at the end of the day, they're not going to be left with the bag. Right. Yeah. It's so, it's just so fascinating to think about it. They call it, uh, what is it like capitalizing the profits that the, these companies get to keep the profits, but socializing the losses. So when, when these bad bets, uh, go down, uh, they don't actually have to they don't pay it out. They don't go out of business. The market never actually self-corrects and it just continues to get bailed out by the government, which continues to increase this bubble. Um, why don't we get into the just the concept of sound money in general? Because I, I think I wish that people could really wrap their heads around what happened and what's happening now when the US was on the gold standard. And then uh, got partially off the gold standard uh, between Roosevelt and then Nixon. And then when Nixon took us completely off the gold standard, and you can literally in 1971, when Nixon did that, you can see the graph in terms of per purchasing power for the middle class, just it just plummets like people, you know, the value of the dollar is, is worthless. And it's so detrimental to the average person, but it's incremental. So they don't realize how bad they're getting hammered by these policies. They see the short term, they get to buy the house. Maybe um, they get to take that loan out on the, on the equity of the house when the market is, is high. Um, but they don't see that their purchasing power has actually been destroyed over the last 30 years or so. Yeah. There's a, a great line from FDR in the film where he says that, you know, people are not, because he's taking uh, us partially off the gold standard that people are not going to see their cost of living go up and their, their purchasing power will yeah. stay the same. <laughs> so like, I hadn't really? heard that really? one before actually. Um, and I saw him say that and it was like, yeah, that didn't happen. You yeah, were wrong about that. <laughs> they definitely didn't keep their promise on that one. Yeah. Um, but like we were talking about before with the fractional reserve system, you know, if you uh, are printing money, um, if you have those certificates and you are printing money, like, like I said, it can go on for a while as long as people aren't turning them in. Um, but they were trying to run all these big deficits during the Great Depression, and they wanted to be able to print more money to pay for that. And so what, what FDR did was he made it illegal to own gold and said, hey, sorry, we're not going to. Uh, we're not going to give you gold if you go turn in your dollars because that that was the system at that point and um it that you actually would get jail time if you didn't turn in your gold there were like exemptions for like some jewelry and stuff like that but like you would actually get a huge fine and go to jail if yeah. you didn't go turn your gold into the government that was also and, bigger than i thought like it was a huge fine it was a big right like, they were yeah, I think hammering it was the, people. the modern day like over a hundred thousand dollars yeah something, which you know surprised yeah, and uh, it, it's it, it's interesting in this current time where you are seeing governments like actually say, you know, if you don't have the vaccine, we're going to find you. Like, you know, that's not happening right. in the U.S., but there are countries where that's happening. It's yeah. just like, man, they they really like to use fines to manipulate people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so 
at, at the time when uh, FDR did that, there, you know, there was a period where he was just setting the gold price. They would make announcements every week. Um, but when he made it illegal for us to turn in gold, um, he didn't make it illegal uh, for foreign banks to do it. And so foreign governments, foreign central banks. Uh, and so uh, we kind of, we, what they called it was, was the Bretton Woods system uh, in the early 40s it was set up. And the idea was that as long as other central banks and other governments could turn in their dollars for gold, they could trust gold and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Everything was going to be fine. You know, we were the big superpower at that point and, and uh, people could trust us. Mm-hmm. But what we saw was in the 60s, they had to pay for, um, you know, the war in Vietnam. They're, they called it guns and butter. It used to be you had to have, uh, you could have guns or you could have butter. You couldn't pick both. But they were saying, no, we can have guns and butter. We can have all this wartime spending, but we can also have all this domestic socialist spending with, uh, with the war on poverty. Um, you know, we can have NASA. We can go to the moon. We can do all this stuff. We're just going to print the money to do it. Um, but they almost ran out of actual gold because the other central banks started pulling it out. They started realizing like this, this is out of control. And so Austrian economists had predict that it would break down and it did. And so, uh, in 1971, Richard Nixon went out and made his statement saying, you know, we're going to save the economy. We're going to stop prices from going up. What we got to do is we got to temporarily go off the gold standard (laughs) here we are today that temporarily never never came to pass um and he implemented uh price price controls and uh you know uh if people don't know about the 1970s like it was a disaster so what what we've been dealing with and what we're in store for um certainly reminds me a lot of the 1970s from what i've studied so um that's something we cover in the film and uh, i think is a part of history that's really beneficial for people, uh, especially now, now that we're starting to see higher price inflation at the same time that we're seeing a struggling economy and recession. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they call stagflation. That's what was happening in the 70s. That was our one vocabulary. Yeah. Okay, we have, we have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I don't think the average person really recognizes how how much this uh, monetary policy is really hammering their own pocketbook. Like it, it happens slowly enough over time uh, that they don't realize that, I mean, we should all, well, you know, I guess here's the question actually, because one of the things that has always astounded me in a sound money economy, I, I think it, it only makes sense that there would be uh, actually a modest deflation over time. The currency should be getting stronger, which would, people would want to save their money then knowing that the purchasing power was going to be stronger in the future uh, as an economy gets more productive. I mean, like something like the personal computer comes out in the eighties and nineties, theoretically, we all became very much more productive people with our time. And none of us saw that in our pocketbooks, you know, like that's not happening. And, And the federal reserve actually says that they have this theory that deflation is just horrible. And, uh, they do everything they can to prevent it. So they're, they're actually trying, what they're trying to do is slowly inflate the economy uh, so that basically so that nobody notices what's going on. <laughs> it's not bad yeah. enough that it's like tanking, um, but it's really actually skimming off the top of everybody's productivity o- over a long period of time. It's devastating for for the average person. Yeah, definitely. And they, 
you know, they said that uh, they are trying to keep prices stable, but in reality, their target has been 2% inflation, which even with 2% inflation over time, you know, that, that hurts people uh, that are trying to save their money. Um, and what we, what, what they ended up changing their policy to was, well, uh, we were trying to, since we were underneath 2% for so long, not only do we have to get back up to 2%, uh, we have to keep it at 2% or maybe we can overshoot it a little bit since since we were under 2% for so long. And so they, they changed their policy. And now, uh, even by the government's own numbers, which understate things, inflation is at 7.5%. Yet they're still massively injecting QE into the economy. You know, they're talking about tapering, but like, yeah, I, I mean, it, tapering isn't even ending QE, like QE is when they create money to buy these bonds. And so tapering just means they're buying less each um, you know, and so it's e- even by their own uh, words, words, they don't uh, w- live up to what they say, because, you know, they're saying, oh, we're going to try to have stable prices. But then they're saying, oh, stable price is really 2%. But then as things get out of control, it's at seven and a half percent when they're still doing all this. And, uh, you know, I, I I think anybody that has followed the Fed, uh, at, you know, even if they look at them every once in a while, you know, they just have seen that they have no credibility. And yeah. I think I think with this next crash, you know, it's going to be hard to not point at the Fed and be like, look, guys, come on. You know, like there's only so long you could get away with just saying this. Well, you know, and I want why don't you t- uh, talk about interest rates then, because that's the other mechanism that they have. Um, and they and they uh, in fact, that's you describe in the film. Uh, in the late 70s, they finally do raise interest rates to a place that kind of puts a because then money becomes more expensive. They loan less of it out. Uh, it puts a damper on the stagflation. Um, but now, I mean, since Alan Greenspan, really, they've just been lowering and lowering and lowering interest rates. And then when that didn't work, it's quantitative easing and they're pumping. They're actually pumping money into the system. Uh, and it's uh, it's basically like this it's like being on a drug. Now they're addicted to it. Things that used to be something that never, they never would have had to do or would never have been imaginable. Now they're just doing it constantly to try to keep this economy afloat. Um, but why don't you talk about that interest rate mechanism and how they've used it over time uh, to try to control the, the money supply? Yeah, the uh, you know, as always, the movie does a better job of explaining this. But um, you know, we talked a little bit about savings, and the interest rate is really just the price of borrowing money. Um, is kind of a simple way of, of putting it. And mm-hmm. so, um, if there's not a lot of savings, you know, the the price of borrowing money is going to be high. The interest rate is going to be high because uh, there's not very much out out there. It's just like the supply of any good. And so, if if, for example, the price of coffee, like let's say there is a storm that destroyed a bunch of coffee crops, like if you don't allow that uh, price of coffee to go up, then you're going to have a shortage. And so um, I, I think what we see with interest rates is they, rather than having savings push down interest rates, they create all this money. So it only makes sense that, okay, in the short term, you know, people say, oh, the interest rate's down, I can go out, I can buy a house. Mm. But in the long run, that can't actually work out. And so to start that housing bubble to, uh, you know, bail out the stock market uh, crash, 
uh, they lowered interest rates from like five and a half percent down to one percent and kept them at one percent for a whole year, which at the time that was just unprecedented to do something like that. Um, but so they were already at one percent and then they allowed them to go back up a little bit and the economy couldn't handle it. And that that led to 2008. And uh, in 2008, they didn't have any wiggle room. You know, they push interest rates down to zero. And then they're like, okay, well, what do we do now? We can't right. make announcements about our interest rates. And so that's when we got QE, quantitative easing, where the, the announcements became about how much money they were creating instead of uh, how they were uh, you know, targeting lower interest rates. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting because um, they, they've really muddied the waters on interest rates because you, you talk about the effects of lowering and raising uh, interest rates. Um, but what we talked about earlier, there's also the interest rate of the interest on reserves that the banks are getting. So they announce these other interest rates that are like, the higher that rate is, the more they're bailing out the banks. Right. But, you know, so it just adds this whole layer of confusion. But that's a, a big part of the uh, puzzle for them, because, you know, all this money that they created to lower rates, um, it, if that gets lent out of the economy and creates price inflation, when they want to try to get that under control, they're, one of their ways of doing that to take money out of the system to stop that fractional reserve banking system from loaning out all this money and creating, uh, you know, price inflation. One of the ways they do that is paying more interest on reserves. So the amount of interest on that interest rate goes up. Uh, yeah, I, we might be losing people now, but it, the, right. the, the, yeah, there, there's the interest that you're the interest rate you're you're borrowing money at and banks are borrowing at. And then there's the interest that interest rate the Fed loans them money at or, or pays them to hold money. Right. But what's so they'll raise that interest rate to get banks to save money, but the, <laughs> the interest rate is low. So we don't have that same incentive to save money. I mean, that's, you know, the, right. whole, the whole thing. It's not only has it fueled massive government debt, but it's really fueled massive economic debt. I mean, all of us are so deeply in debt right now as a country, it, as individuals, all the individuals are also, you know, their credit cards are getting maxed out or they've got a lot of debt in their, in their mortgage. Um, so it's kind of funny, like they keep kicking the can down the road. Um, and not only does the government get deeper in debt, but it's us. I mean, we're getting deeper in debt. We're not saving that money. Our productivity is not turning into long-term value. That's right. It's it's because that interest rate signal has been distorted. If if yeah. rates were allowed to go back up, that would tell everybody, okay, we need to save more. We need to spend less. We need to come back to reality and realize that society and ourselves are not as wealthy as we think. And that's you know that's a big driver behind why they keep doing what they're doing is because they believe in the wealth effect that if people think their stock portfolios and their retirements are high, they're going to go out and spend money and be reckless. And, you know, they don't want people coming back to reality, right. uh, especially like you said, with the government debt, e each president we have basically doubles the national debt. And now we're up to like 30 trillion. Like it's, it's insane. Amazing. And so, and so they've had that huge incentive where they can borrow all that money for basically nothing. But now the cost of uh, maintaining that debt, if they do allow interest rates to go back up, they would have to pay more interest on the national debt. And so the federal government has this huge incentive or the Federal Reserve has this huge incentive uh, to keep the federal government happy. You know, they finance their deficits by doing all this. Um, they have this huge incentive to err on the side of printing more money because it, it keeps that interest on the national debt down. 
But e- even now with them keeping uh, rates all the way down that they have, like we're still paying like 400 uh, plus billion dollars a year on interest on reserves, which was, you know, that was unthinkable 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's even, <laughs> oh, I mean, this conversation, once you start to put the puzzle together, it's like, what, how are they doing this? Like who's making that 400 billion? I mean, who owns the, the federal reserve, right? I mean, we can yeah, get into yeah, that, that conversation. Like we're, you mean the government has to borrow money to the institution that it's paying to print the money for free, you know, for nothing. Right. And then it's, and then the government pays like massive amounts of interest to this essentially private organization or some quasi public private entity. Uh, it has to pay billions of dollars to every year because we've manufactured this debt-based system that the government, I mean, the government could just print the money. I mean, that goes into the public banking conversation, but the government could just print the money itself and not have to pay interest at least. I mean, still have the same inflationary pressures maybe, but why are we paying interest back to these guys? (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting that when they set up the federal reserve system, because like you said, it's kind of like this private trust, you know, kind of like Fannie Mae was like a government sponsored institution you know it's not tech it wasn't technically on the government's balance sheet but you know with right. all these special powers the government's giving them uh you know no, nobody else can go out and print money it's just the fed that's allowed to do that yeah. um but yeah there's uh private stockholders in it and everything um but uh when it was created they actually went to jekyll island which is uh in georgia and they they actually lied about why they were going there. They said they were going on a hunting trip, and then they went there and you know made up this Federal Reserve system yeah. and then went back to Washington and passed it. And it's uh, it's pretty wild. I actually got to go uh, to a Mises Institute event at, at the actual hotel uh, on Jekyll Island. Oh wow! And just to be in that room and just uh, think back to all those years ago, how this all got started uh, just over a hundred years ago. Um, it, it's just wild what they what they've been able to get away with. Yeah, if, uh, if if for those of you trying to understand more about this and want to know the history, the creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin is the book. Uh, yeah. is the book to read. I, I've had the pleasure of having a conversation with him before. So it's nice. pretty fascinating when you <laughs> when you really realize that, you know, a handful of rich guys and a couple senators literally got together uh, at this resort and hashed all of this out. And then I think they even passed the Federal Reserve Bill on like Christmas Eve. I, you know, it was, yeah, it was that- completely pushed through Congress without debate. The Federal Reserve has a long history of doing things on Christmas Eve and Christmas oh, Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The best way to stay out of the news cycle. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just what's so amazing about it is that you can't believe that it's just some kind of a scam, that there really is. Um, yeah, I think when I've looked into it, and it's hard to figure out, but the so the Federal Reserve is broken up into 12 different Federal Reserve banks, and then the big banks in each of those sections of the country controlled by each Federal Reserve Bank, the big banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they own, I think they own typically the stock. There might be individuals. I mean, you can't find the list of the people that actually own the stock. But so, I mean, that's what, again, this is just fascinating that the whole system is predicated on this fractional reserve banking system that charges interest to the government to print money. I mean, it's just typing zeros ones and zeros into a computer and then they can charge the government billions and billions of dollars uh, worth of interest and they can inflate the money supply as much as they want i mean it's just 
it's and it's just public they just do it openly like yeah just how things are they don't mention it in the school system but that's just how things are yeah well actually you know why don't we get into because it's the keynesian economists that typically justify this kind of behavior i mean the 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 austrian school guys are always like what are you doing this is insane it's gonna come back and bite us all in the ass and then it inevitably does um, but the Keynesians uh, justify it. They think this is a sound fiscal monetary policy that lets the government, you know, do what it's got to do. Yeah, the the their you would think their school of thought would have gone by the wayside in the seventies because their entire system was based on the idea that you either have you know price inflation or you have high unemployment that you you know right. you couldn't have both the stagflation like you're talking about but you know they just keep coming back uh modifying their their school and they they seem to always find their way into power um the 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 third school that is mentioned is really the monetarists and they're more uh more about stable prices um okay. and then the Keynesians are more like uh during the depressions and recessions, we need to not just create money. We need to also um, have fiscal stimulus. So we need to have big government spending bills and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, John Maynard Keynes uh, in the 1930s, uh, I think a big part of it is um, he was writing about things that the regimes wanted to hear. And so uh, Keynesian economics like became this huge thing, and a lot of uh, Austrian economic ideals like went by the wayside. Um, and uh, like Ben Bernanke went up. So I mentioned that I took economics classes at Iowa. Like huh. Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chairman, was the author of my textbook. Like, oh wow! Yeah, my macroeconomics section. Right. And so it's like they're literally the ones in charge of the education. It's not. You know, they kind of teach the schools of thought. They definitely don't teach Austrian economics. Uh, there are very few uh, places that you can study Austrian economics. Yeah. I was actually very lucky. There was uh, an Austrian economics class at the University of Iowa. Huh. Um, so I was able to study under Patrick Barron, who you can see under the film. You are listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. With well, the last part of the conversation here, let's talk about what has been happening. You've got the, the new film, hopefully coming out sometime soon. Um, and now we have this everything bubble. And we have interest rates. I mean, they basically, it appears, have maxed out this system. They've got interest rates at next to nothing, so they can't lower interest rates anymore. And if they continue to do math, well, they've got inflation. They've got bad inflation problems. So they, if they continue to just throw money at the problem through quantitative easing and other issues, and that's just going to keep getting worse. So it's starting to look like we're getting it to the end of, of our rope here. What do you see is going to happen? How how long can they sustain the everything bubble before it bursts? 
Well, like like I said, you know, uh, none of us are claiming to be able to predict the timing. Or anything. Yeah, it's always but like, a, but like you they said, can, they can go far. They can keep it going. Like it's when right. you think they can't do right. it, they figure out how to keep it going right. a little while longer. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the best thing to do is to try to protect yourself from volatility. And you yeah. know, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Um, you know, most of the people in the film uh, view it as don't view gold and silver as an investment, view it as a way of trying to lose money or sorry, not trying to lose money, trying to lose less money than everyone uh-huh. else, you know, like, sure. Um, because that's how bad it can be. And, you know, some people say, Oh, if you can walk in this low interest rate and buy a house 30 years from now, the, that the value of that, um, you know, because the dollar will have gone down so much, like it doesn't matter if you lose uh, a percentage of that loan, uh, like if house prices go down 30%, who cares? Because if you're not selling it for 30 years or whatever, then the dollar just loses tons of value over that, that time. And and who cares? Yeah. Um, but you know, I, it, for me, it's hard to, uh, justify doing that when the last 10 years, they've been buying all these mortgage bonds for the last 10 years and saying someday we're going to start unloading them. Right now, we're getting to that point in the cycle where they're saying, we're going to let interest rates go up a little bit. Um, we're we're, we're going to sell off some of that debt. They're saying that. We'll see if they actually do. Uh, but the difference is now we're starting to see higher price inflation, like you said. And so they kind of have to get things under control or else things can spiral out uh, really badly on the price inflation. End. Yeah. And, and so... Personally, I think that they are going to allow rates to go up a little bit, um, at least until things crash a little bit, and then they'll try to prop it all up again. Right. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you know, they may get pressure from the White House to, um, you know, don't don't crash the stock market. We'll just try to deal with the fallout from having pri- high price inflation. And in that case, then I think. Uh, they'll do more price controls. And when you have price controls where the government's mandating these things, that's when you get real bad shortages. And so, so that's, uh, you know, a scary outlook, but as far as the film, um, so the first film covers the causes and the run up to the housing bubble uh, leading up to 2008. And then it goes back over the, um, you know, the causes of the Great Depression, Panic of 1920, uh, stagflation in the 1970s. So like it kind of uses those to verify our our claims about what caused the crash, right? But then at the same time, it, it's looking at the different ways they've responded to crashes in the past so that we have the knowledge to have the second film that starts in 2008 with the bailouts and shows how they responded this time. And so this second film starts with the bailouts in 2008, brings it up to the pandemic, um, and I think it's going to be uh, a lot, uh, you know, the first one is very accessible, but it does have a lot of history in it uh-huh. um, in the second half. And whereas the second film is more just about the last 10 years. So it's going to be more current events. It's going to be uh, easier to get people to sit down, um, I think. Um, so right now people can see the housing bubble at thebubblefilms.com or lettucedisagree.com. Um, and you can uh, watch it on Vimeo digitally or you can order a Blu-ray DVD. Um, and then we're actually expanding to the Apple Store, uh, Google Store, and Voodoo um, in the next couple months here. Um, and then hopefully the bigger bubble, that sequel, will be out later this year. We just did a test screening of, you know, a, a very rough test screening um, at Oklahoma State. 
Um, and you know, we're really excited to get it out there because um, the first film, uh, we had our, our world premiere at Freedom Fest at the Anthem Film Festival in uh, July 2018. And then we had our, our New York premiere in uh, June uh, 2019. And that's when we actually were able to raise the money we needed to finish the film and uh, you know buy all the news clips we needed so it looked good and everything. Um, and so then the film came out uh, in December of 2019 on Blu-ray and DVD. We were all set. We've, we've done like 25 screenings uh, across the country, mm -hmm. um, but we were all set to just be on the road as much as we could screening this film, getting the word out. And then they shut down all the movie theaters. Right. Of course. So, uh. so I'm very excited. You know, we, despite all that, we have sales in 71 countries, you know, we've oh, all cool. 50 States, um, you know, we're reaching a lot of people. Um, but I'm really excited about getting this next film out there because I, I think we're going to, uh, the timing of it and everything, I really think we're going to be able to reach a lot of people. And, you know, if, if people can show their kids this stuff, um, you know, it, it gives them a foundation to build their education on when they go to college instead right. of going to college and just, you know, being spouted all this math, which is what economics classes are these days. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really, uh, that's one of the things I'm really proud of with the film is just how easy it is to understand for like even a middle schooler. And um, the other thing, since we talked about war, the other thing that I'm really proud of is our scenes about World War II in World War One, because, you know, most documentaries, when you see war, they're like, oh, look at this guy running with a gun or look at this building blow up. And uh, just, you know, we didn't do that. Like when you watch our war scenes, like you are seeing people die. Um, you know, it's not like it's a bloody massacre, but I, I, I'm really happy with how that turned out because I think um, as we're talking about the economics of this, there's also this huge emotional side of like, yes, this really does, uh, right. you know, this really does hurt people that, that we're enabling uh, war. And the Keynesians actually say war is good for the economy. And they, right. you know, they say World War II got us out of the Great Depression. And so it's really important that people like the president don't think wars are how you get out of a recession or a depression. It's really right. important. <laughs> so, Well, you know, one of the things that's been astounding me lately is that there are these common historical myths. And, um, you know, just like the one that says that, oh, the, the free market centralizes the means of production and that's what gets us here and that's why that we have to use this keynesian economics and and uh myths like wars are are productive and get us out of the depression i mean these are this isn't true but that's what it, it's like that's what so many people feel like that's just common knowledge you know it's i don't know why uh and it's public so, schools well <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, th that's another conversation, but it is very true that um, that we need to do something about education because people need to have these alternative uh, um, these opportunities to see this alternative information, uh, and it should be common knowledge. It should be out there, and it should be at least something that's that's debated. You know, it's part of the process. Right. But um, right. instead, I mean, then there's unfortunately probably a really good reason why it's not common knowledge because some you know, some of these guys don't want us to know, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show and trying to explain this to people. I was going to say, I think we're, I mean, I don't know, but I think we're interested in, uh, we're um, looking to have a, a pretty interesting six months here, probably, because I don't know 
what else could possibly happen if they raise interest rates right now? I mean, the Fed's talking about it, and I feel like a, a half percent interest hike right now is just going to tank the economy. I mean, I think that's all it's going to yeah. take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows how much it'll take, but it definitely is less stable than it was just a few years ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a real interesting time. You mentioned the structure of the Fed earlier, talking about the 12 different things. So there's different people that sit on the Fed board. um, And so they kind of rotate through the different uh, uh, regions and stuff. And so uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth uh, was talking about the fact that that rotation this year, uh-huh. The people that are more dovish, the more likely to uh, keep printing money and keep interest rates down, are some of those people are going off the board, and some of the more hawkish people that want oh, to wow. get price inflation out, uh, under control are on the board this year. And yeah. so that's something that's a flip from uh, this last year, and is something to keep an eye on. But yeah, you know they they're talking about. Uh, about tapering and everything. Right now, they're buying a hundred billion dollars uh, worth of uh, mortgage bonds a, a month. I think so. Okay. It's like, I mean, that's that's three times as much as they were creating uh, to create the housing bubble. That's three times as much money just that they're buying uh, mortgage bonds with. So that doesn't even count all the money they're creating. So it's like, yeah, QE. They may talk about tapering QE, but what what we've seen is they always find their ways to do it. Yeah. And um, we didn't get into this, but uh, the the TARP bailouts in 2008 were, you know, $700 billion, huge public outcry. You know, how could you spend all this money bailing out the banks? And in, in, we didn't find out until years later, the Fed was doing secret bailouts of those banks that got TARP money, which we talk about in this next film. Uh-huh. And it was like, you know, uh, trillions of dollars. Astronomical yeah, amounts yeah. of money. And so, so we see these TARP bailouts. And Henry Paulson's going out there bragging about how he saved the economy with TARP when it's like, ah, they got like $20, $30 billion uh, at one bank. And then they were getting like $100 billion in secret loans from the Fed. So it's right. like, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was uh, your TARP bailouts. <laughs> I think you guys are just lying. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's amazing. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I think... Um... I don't see any way out besides another kind of 2008 type crash. And I'm wondering if they're not going to try to switch things over to these new uh, central bank digital currencies after that, if they're not just going to, you know, okay, we're going to crash this one and we're going to switch it over to this whole new system now because uh, they just, they can't milk this cow anymore. (laughs) Right. 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 And they, they want to be able to track your money. You know, they, they, they don't want us using cash because they, you can give somebody a hundred dollars and buy some weed. But if, if they right. can, if they can see all your transactions, I mean, imagine the IRS having that power to, to know everybody's transactions and I pay I my taxes and I, it still scares me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, that probably is what it all boils down to is that it's all a power play. I mean, they, you know, they, they want to be more and more and more controlling and guys like you and I are saying, you know what, like the system would actually work better for everyone if we were free to make our own choices, you know, including the currencies that we use and how we use them. So I don't know. I hope people watch these films and, and, uh, and really kind of start to wake up to what's going on. Just having this conversation with you actually, 
uh, makes me angry about the, you know, the poverty <laughs> and the war. These are this yeah, is real. Right. I, mean, I, I read articles about it, and it's kind of academic, but um, it's real suffering that this kind of monetary uh, policy creates in, in a lot of people's lives and they, they don't see it. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a behind the scenes, really manipulative way to, to be very controlling. And now again, like the, the, the CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies, even more so they're going to be telling you uh, when you can spend money, how long you can spend it and what you can spend it on if these things uh, really take off. So, right. You know, yeah, Doug French, uh, he used to be the head of the Mises Institute, and um, and he, he's had a lot of good writing on the housing crash. And he was in real estate in, uh, in Las Vegas, where they saw it fall 50%, uh, house prices fall 50% during the last crash. And uh, I saw him speak, and it just really hit home with me, because he said, you know, he's talking about people jumping out of windows, like, yeah. killing themselves. Like, this is something that has a real impact, where you put... Um, you know, all this instability into the economy where people are being tricked into doing things essentially by all right. these fake signals. And right. it, it has real, real, uh, real consequences. And that's something that we've seen with the lockdowns the last couple of years too, with suicides and stuff like that is, um, you know, it, it's easy to, to say, oh, I'm going to do this policy and it's just going to fix things and just let me spend a little money. It's going to work out. But there's all these unseen consequences that, that there's no way that any government bureaucrat uh, can calculate all, yeah. all these things. So, um, yeah, not to end on such a sour note. I know, war right? and suicide. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully people watch the films and, and they and they start to figure it out because, you know, like we've been talking about, these are complicated subjects which i think is why almost why they can get away with it you know yeah. they 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 hide behind all these complicated economic terms and and they call it this and that and you think you're just going to the bank and getting a loan uh or using your credit card and you uh the average person really has no idea all the the mountain of monetary policy behind that transaction that is like you said, like giving a lot of false signals about the choices that we make instead of just having a market where things are pretty cut and dried. We can make a risk benefit analysis for ourselves. Maybe we're saving a little bit of money. Uh, so we have a nest egg. Uh, instead, it's like we think we're making good economic choices, but um, the whole marketplace has been very skewed uh, by all this free money that's getting thrown around. On 60 Minutes, Alan Greenspan called it Fed speak. Fed speak yeah. is when Alan Greenspan would go talk to Congress and he would use words that congressmen do not understand right. to intentionally manipulate them. And he admitted this on 60 Minutes. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, cool. We'll be looking forward to the next movie. Do you have a, an estimate on when it might come out? Uh, we'll probably start doing test screenings this summer and then release it in the fall, hopefully. Okay. Um, but I also said the first one was going to come out in like 2013. So right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the best track record on that. Well, but just just one just one more time, I just want to say lettucedisagree.com, yeah. thebubblefilms.com. Um, we've, we've got tons of other stuff on there, like music videos and uh, short films. And um, I, I mentioned to you earlier, uh, we shot a mockumentary that has uh, cameos with Oscar-winning director David Lynch. Um, it has Jeff Dowd on it, the guy that was the original inspiration for the dude for the Big Lebowski. Um, so it's just kind of a fun oh, nice. film people can check out. <laughs> um, and, and I've got more stuff uh, in the works. So people can follow us at lettucedisagree.com. Okay. 
Sounds good. And I'll uh, make sure and have those links in the show notes too. So people can, uh, can find the movie um, and uh, hopefully keep an eye out for the second one. I'll have you back on when the second one comes out. So, so uh, I Thanks, can help man. promote it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, like we were, t- we did, we've been talking about, these are really important concepts and I hope more people can kind of get this information in front of their face in a way that they can digest it. So uh, they can start to really see what's going on. There's some serious changes that probably should be made and the, the faster, the better before, I mean, this next bubble bursts, right? Right. Right. Exactly. It's been right. great, man. Thanks for uh, having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. For sure. And I'll just let you all know that uh, you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Doug McKenty. Trying to get more people on Twitter, though. So if you're on Twitter, at D McKenty, it would be a great place to uh, kind of get involved in the conversation with me about the show. And I have been writing this new blog at the Populist Papers on Substack. I've been talking a little bit of philosophy, and I'll be talking more economics and, and more current events as, uh, as the blog rolls on. So uh, you can check that out, too. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, and thanks again, Jimmy, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and that was my conversation with uh, documentary director Jimmy Morrison, the director of the Housing Bubble movie. Um, Like I said in the interview, I think this is the most important issue that's never discussed. Um, It's complicated. Jimmy uh, went to great lengths to try to make his depiction of how money is created, what's going on in terms of monetary policy, how these bubbles are created uh, as simple as possible in the movie. Because a lot of times, and we even discussed a little bit, uh, these guys use something called Fed speak, which makes it really complicated. They use these complicated terms, these complicated economic terms, quantitative easing uh, to describe what they're doing. And a lot of people just don't understand it. It's not something that they're interested in. And so they don't even really think about it as they go on uh, their day-to-day lives. But the fact of the matter is we all use the dollar bill. (laughs) Uh, And we use it every day. Uh, And it has powerful implications uh, on our lives, especially over the long term. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that since the creation of the Federal Reserve, Uh, Since 1913, uh, the U.S. dollar has lost 99% of its spending power. So uh, a penny today was worth a dollar a hundred years ago. And so uh, inflation is sometimes called this uh, invisible tax. And inflation is what happens when they expand the money supply, which they just consistently do, uh, basically because they can. What most people don't understand about this is that they inflate the money supply by creating debt. They create money by creating debt. So many of us have this feeling that, uh, you know, people put their money in the bank and then the bank loans that out. Well, this fractional reserve banking system allows banks to lend out 10 times the amount of money that they actually have in the bank. They're literally creating money when they make that loan out to you. They don't have it. They create it. Um, But the interesting thing is, and I want everybody to really think about this, you still have to pay interest back on that debt. So if money is all created by debt and there's an interest payment that you've got to pay, then where does that interest payment come from? Uh, It comes from 
outside of the money supply, right? It, it, but it doesn't. It comes from within the money supply, but at the expense of somebody else. So if you want to know why poverty is a big issue in the United States today, it's because we're all scrambling to try to pay our loans back with interest. It creates this competitive environment where some people have to be losers. Uh, it doesn't have to be this way. We can have other, there's other economic theories out there. Uh, we discussed a little bit in the interview about the public banking option. Uh, I've interviewed Ellen Brown from the Public Banking Institute on a number of different occasions. That at least allows communities or localities wherever if your county had a public bank or even if your state has a, has a public bank, uh, then they can be at least empowered locally, more locally, uh, to engage in this money creation process and it can help your local community. And also keep the money away from Wall Street. Like this whole, our financial system is centered upon getting money into Wall Street stock markets that are controlled by the banks that own the Federal Reserve. And the more you get into it, I mean, again, it is complicated. But you have to understand that there's essentially a scam going on here. Uh, our money is getting weaker over time. It should get slightly stronger over time as productivity increases. I mean, we've invented these uh, in the last 20 years. We've invented the personal computer in the last 40 years. And so the productivity increases have been massive, which means we should all get to work less and have more money, right? Except that hasn't happened. Why? Well, because the government just keeps expanding the money supply and the banks keep expanding the money supply. They do it by giving out all these big loans, which create these big bubbles, and when the bubbles burst, guess who sweeps in and picks up all those assets? Uh, the big Wall Street corporations. We're seeing it now with corporations like Vanguard and BlackRock that are starting to purchase more and more real estate. And like we mentioned as well, um, since 2008, that bubble burst the government has gone into overdrive. They've reduced interest rates down to next to nothing, uh, and they've engaged in this quantitative easing, which is just them basically giving money away to Wall Street uh, and engaging in all manner of, of money creation just to try to keep this economy afloat with more and more money. We're starting to see the inflation kick in uh, right now. We've all seen it over the past year. Uh, and now with this situation in, in the Ukraine, it's only going to get worse. And this is another thing that I just want to take a quick minute to discuss here that most people don't understand, as well as the monetary policy within the United States, outside the United States, the dollar is now considered the world reserve currency, which means that m most other countries buy and sell products in the dollar. So if we're, uh, I think actually Jimmy did discuss how we're on the Saudi Arabian oil standard basically since 1971. They took the dollar off the gold standard and they started buying mostly the Saudi Arabian oil is the biggest uh, commodity that's purchased off with dollars. Uh, and basically all dollar transactions between countries, uh, all transactions between countries are done in dollars. That allows the United States to print a lot of money without causing inflation here at home because a lot of those dollars will go to Saudi Arabia when we buy oil from them or uh, Russia or China, right? And now uh, what's just happened with the Ukraine situation is they've pulled Russia from the SWIFT system, which is what helps transact, make all these transactions happen in dollars. Uh, at least I think seven of the, of the bigger banks in Russia have been pulled from the system. And they're already prepared for this. They're, they have started an organization called the BRIC Countries, 
um, Brazil, Russia, India, China uh, working together uh, to trade in their own currencies other than the dollar. Uh, when this goes down, if countries stop trading in the dollar, those dollars will come home where they can be spent here in the United States. That's going to cause massive inflation. Um, of course, the way my mind works, this is all part of the plan. Uh, if the dollar does crash, we're already at close to zero interest rates. There's nothing they can do to stimulate the economy anymore. Uh, then they'll switch us over to these central bank digital currencies, um, which I think is the long-term plan. Um, so just thinking in terms of big picture, I guess the whole point here is to understand how much these uh, currency wars are really behind foreign policy. It's something that, just like monetary policy, is never discussed domestically. Uh, how much these currency wars are occurring abroad really affect foreign policy, we're never told. Libya, for example, uh, was looking to get off the dollar uh, and uh, onto this gold-backed Libyan dinar that Gaddafi was going to use throughout Africa. That was a no-no. Iraq was going to start selling its oil in the euro instead of the dollar. That was a no-no. Look what happened in those countries. Uh, wars are fought over this, uh, and people have no idea that it's the major uh, driver behind a lot of these foreign policy decisions, including what's going on in the Ukraine right now. So um, this stuff is important to learn and learn about, and that was the great thing about the housing bubble movie is that it presented the information in a way that a lot of people can understand. Uh, it is very important to understand why these things are happening. Why is our dollar losing value? Why are we more in debt today and have less savings uh, than 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago, right? Why is this trend just continuing to go in this direction? Well, the answer is all about this domestic mon monetary policy. Um, and so uh, I really recommend checking out the movie because it will explain to you uh, in, in very simple terms why these issues are so important and provide some alternatives as to how you can start thinking about what we can do to get around this. Uh, some people have become uh, real cryptocurrency advocates. Uh, hoping that it could it could uh, get around, circumvent uh, this dollar hegemony and provide a, a different kind of currency. But uh, that's looking like it's going to be fairly controlled. And of course, if they really want to funnel us into these central bank digital currencies, that's a, a totally different monster. Uh, I think that's clearly what's in the in the pipeline so um learning about this stuff is very important um so i hope that you enjoyed that he is coming out with a new movie uh the bigger bubble movie uh which is describing the, these guys all just double down double downed on uh making these expansionist fiscal policies from 2008 the way they got out of it was just by printing more money and they've been printing money and more of it for the last uh 12, 14 years since then, uh, and we've got a huge, we've got a housing bubble, we've got a stock market bubble, we've got bubbles going on. Uh, I think uh, we just heard about the used car bubble. Uh, used cars are going for twice their value these days, <laughs> and so uh, potentially what could really happen, especially with this Ukraine crisis pushing up oil prices, right? We've already got inflation. We crank up oil prices just a little bit more and suddenly people can't pay back those loan payments. And that's what it takes. That's when the bubble bursts. And um, I'm uh, afraid that the next 
couple of years, we might just see exactly that. So again, learning about this fiscal policy, this monetary policy stuff, even though it does seem complicated, it seems uh, above a lot of people's heads, is probably the most important issue you can educate yourself about. It's the, it's the fix. It's the way to fix poverty. It's a way to fix the economy, and it's also the cause of poverty and how they can crash the economy so that they can, the, the corporations, the billionaire class can, can buy uh, lots of, of goods, services, and resources on the cheap, uh, which is, I think, why they perpetuate these systems that create these, this boom and bust. They make the money, and then when it busts, they buy low, right? And then they create the boom, and they sell high, uh, and this is how they maintain uh, their, their monetary power, right? <laughs> Um, it's just the same old story, and it's essentially a scam. Uh, so uh, worth understanding and trying to figure out how you can uh, make your way around it. Local currencies, uh, public banking ideas, uh, certain cryptocurrencies potentially. There are some solutions out there, but uh, it's challenging. We're fighting, we're fighting the real beast on this one. Um, so again, you can check this stuff out at www.letusdisagree.com. That's the name of Jimmy Morrison's production company. He's also, the film is at thebubblefilm.com, so you can check it out there. Uh, and I would urge uh, any one of you to uh, check this one out. Again, it's it's all laid out in fairly simple terms. He does a great job. He worked really hard to, to make it accessible, um, and that's important. And I think that once that light bulb goes off, you'll start to realize just how important this issue is. So I uh, urge all of my listeners to check it out. Next week, I have got a, a great conversation with Mary Lynn coming out for you. Over, uh, We're talking about sovereign communication. Um, some of you may know that my uh, I've started this blog at the Populist Papers uh, on Substack. It's called the Populist Papers. And uh, my first couple of articles have been about this disagreement that's been going on in the scene, uh, about how to communicate better using critical thinking, using logic, but also being able to respect one another. And somebody was reading some of my works. Mary Lynn gets in touch with me. She actually disagreed with me, but she communicated with me in such a great style that I invited her on the show and we're going to have a whole conversation about how to have better communication with people so that we can help each other move forward instead of constantly feeling like we're butting heads with each other. So look forward to that one. Um, I know I've been, as you can tell, I've lost my beautiful backdrop. I've been moving, so uh, I just moved to Iowa. It's now snowing outside. That's a bit of a long story as to why I moved here, but this is my new space. Uh, I try to put the bookshelf in the background. Um, and so this will be where I will be broadcasting from from uh, here on out for the next couple of years at least. So uh, that's why I've been a little bit behind on getting content out these uh, last few weeks. I uh, hope you'll forgive me for that. And I'll have, uh, I do have um, two more interviews in the can. Uh, I'm going to do another one on Saturday. So I'll be releasing a lot uh, here in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. All right, and of course, you can check out my stuff at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. Again, the blog is on Substack called The Populist Papers, uh, and we'll be uh, getting stuff out. I'm at Twitter, uh, at D. McKenty on Twitter, uh, Doug McKenty on Facebook. You can also find The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook. I'm experimenting with a lot of different social media sites, but uh, Twitter and Facebook are the two that get the most action these days, as much as I'd like to move on. Um, so you can check me out there. 
All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you again next week. Take care.